one happy person here today at least, and that's Ray Cox. Ray, why don't you just stand up here, invite the elders to come up to welcome Ray. So Ray, what we have for you, these are your notes that you uh, keep them somewhere safe. You'll look at them hopefully in 20 years and say, did I say that? Wow. <laughs> what we have here is a baptismal certificate, and it says um, to Ray Cox, uh, baptized at the Anderson Church, and it has the, our belief system inside. And um, this basically is what Ray and I covered. We talked about more than just this, but this is the basic belief system of the Adventist church. So Ray has been instructed in what we believe. Um, but you know, belief has to be linked with action. So this man is already witnessing all over Anderson, Reading. People are here this morning because of Ray. The man is bearing fruit to God's glory. So Ray, I'm just encouraging you to continue in the way that you have started. That promise that was there in our study this morning in Thessalonians, uh, he's the one that's going to bring us through to the end strong. And I believe that. So Ray, here's your certificate. Congratulations. And welcome to the Anderson Church. Oh, we need to vote. Before we shake his hand, we need to vote. <laughs> All in favor of Ray joining the Adventist Church family, say amen. amen. Those opposed, see how silent they are? Welcome, Ray. Thank you, Pastor. Just before we uh, pray and open God's Word, I want to kind of remind you where we are going with this. And I want you to look for the one common denominator in the sermons that I've been preaching lately. First one, August 4, is, as the Father sends me, so send I you. So the ministry of Jesus we are to reproduce on this earth. Uh, he is the head, we're part of the body, right? And the energy, the guidance, everything that the body needs is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in control of the church. Then I talked about uh, 1 Peter 2, a royal priesthood that we all have parts. That's not based upon gender. It's not based upon intellect, race, or anything. God brings into his priestly family, family those who trust in Jesus Christ. Then after that, I went into the, uh, the head and the body imagery. And then last week, four passages, the basic four passages on spiritual gifts, and then maybe giving a little bit more attention to the one in Ephesians chapter 4. What is the one common denominator in all of those sermons? Ministry, you could say that, yeah? The church. It's all about what the church is. And I think the greatest failing, or one of the greatest failings in the church is we do not understand the nature of what God is trying to do through the church. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm not talking so much about hierarchical organizations. I'm talking about the family of God. So that's what I want us to understand, and I will continue that today as we go into 1 Corinthians, we'll go through 
for the first uh, 18 verses of, of chapter 1. So take a Bible, and um, I guess I should give you the page reference. What book? First Corinthians, and in the, the Bible in the pew, which I, I would like everybody to have a Bible in their hands. Uh, Ray, you can take this one that I have. Uh, page 1771. 1771. Let's bow our heads as we, as we pray. Dear kind and loving Heavenly Father, not a one of us here would have a clue if it wasn't for your Word and for your Holy Spirit. So bring them both together today. We know the Holy Spirit has inspired this, this uh, word of yours, and we need continual guidance, continual instruction and understanding, and, of course, application. Help us to understand um, why you form the church, what you're trying to do through those that believe in you. So bless us, Lord, abundantly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I look at my watch, I have 11 minutes, right? So do you want a spiritual sandwich or a full course meal? <laughs> I can't, I don't have time to give, and probably it's not necessary at this point, to give you a lot of background on 1 Corinthians, but I'll just say a few things. This is a place, Corinth is a place in Greece. The good news of the gospel had spread out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And of course, God used this man Paul in a very wonderful way to get that message out, the message of Jesus Christ, the significance of his life, death, and resurrection, and of course, his ministry in heaven. And one of the places he went to was Corinth. Now, some of you here have probably been to modern-day Greece and visited Corinth, right? And I would like to do that myself. This was a, a, a metropolitan area, so think of city. Think of all the urban problems of a city, all of the vices and, and the challenges that it would, would present in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, the immorality that was there. They had the big temple with the temple prostitutes. Um, a lot of things that you and I uh, have around us, either on the television or in our society, and here they all are in Corinth. And as Paul started sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit worked on the lives of certain people who we will call Christians, saints, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to understand, this is very important, that a lot of them are very immature, fairly new to the faith, need a lot of instruction, a lot of help, a lot of building up. And when you have um, such, a, such a, a new body of believers, it's very easy for the false teachers to infiltrate. It is actually one of the concerns I have um, in the Seventh-day Adventist church that on the one hand we know that if we have 
a pastor over 10 churches, for example, uh, as we do in some parts of the world, maybe 20 churches or even 30 churches, unless you have really strong leadership in those churches, Satan exploits the vulnerability of the flock of God. It's like a wolf seeing some stray sheep, and it's going to go for them. Whereas at least one of the advantages of having a pastor or an elder over a church is that there can be some protection. So we don't really know who the false teachers were. I could give you six options this morning, and you wouldn't be sure which one to pick. So the one that I'm going to pick, the one that's the most convincing to me, is I believe that they were Jewish Christians who believed in an early form of Gnosticism. Now, what is Gnosticism? It starts with a G, but you don't pronounce the G. What's Gnosticism? Did Gnostics believe the body was good or bad? Bad. So Larry got that one right. Bad. The body is bad. And the only thing that's important to the Gnostics is the spirit. So they had wrong ideas about Jesus, wrong, certainly wrong ideas about his death. And they were probably very persuasive, maybe, maybe highly educated Jewish people. And they made life really tough for Paul, who wasn't in Corinth. He's just having to write a letter. At some point, he has to leave Corinth and do other things, and that's when the false teachers came in with their false teachings. And they're really, really shaking this congregation up so that this congregation has a lot of issues. And if, I give, if this was a sermon where I give you a, sweet, a sweeping view of First and Second Corinthians, you'd think, wow, why would anyone want to join a church like that? They had problems with suing one another, they had problems with immorality. They had problems with women wearing veils or not wearing veils. They had problems over food. Just a host. Schisms, factions, different groups. And yet, look at this introduction to them. Paul, called to be an apostle, that's specially mentioned because the false teacher would challenge his apostleship. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Ever heard the name Sosthenes before? You do remember the sermon I preached on Acts 18, don't you? Now, you shouldn't lie in church, so. When we went into Acts 18, there was a Sosthenes there. He was the, he was the leader of the synagogue, and he got beat up. So maybe this is the same beat-up Sosthenes who's now got converted. Wouldn't be the first synagogue ruler to get converted. Let's hope it is the same one. To the church of God, that's what we're talking about these last few weeks. To the church of God in Corinth. What does the church of God mean? It's very important that you have one basic idea in your head. And the biblical idea, it means those called out, those called out from the world, those called out from the Corinthian society, those called out of darkness. If we go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, what, what some of us studied this morning, called into the light. So these are believers. 
This is the church family. But the Greek word is ecclesia, called out from the world to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, was it last week or the week before? I give you a very quick definition of sanctification as something that is set apart. So you could have sanctified dirt on the ground. Moses, take the shoes off your feet because the ground you're standing on is sanctified or holy ground. It's the same dirt as the, as the other dirt, <laughs> uh, 10 yards away, but the presence of God, the declaration of God sanctifies or sets apart something for sacred use. So that's a good way to understand. You can, it's more than just what I've said, but that's a basic idea. Set apart to serve God and called to be what? Holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we spent some time in, in my class this morning talking about the, the, what the gospel is and the implications of the gospel. So those that are saved, those that are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just because we believe that Jesus uh, was a historical figure or we believe that Jesus um, is in heaven now or whatever else we might believe, Jesus was a good man or whatever. No, it's that we've made the choice. God has singled us out and we have responded and when that happens, when that transaction takes place, God fills us with His Holy Spirit. Amen. So without that Holy Spirit, everything we're saying this morning and everything we talk about church life is totally irrelevant. I mean, even the Bible is totally irrelevant without a Holy Spirit to help us to interpret it or to move on these holy men and women of God as they were inspired over the centuries. All the work of the Holy Spirit, don't you think so? Yeah. It's the Holy Spirit that woos us to Jesus. He's the one who brings us to Christ. He's the one that keeps us in Christ. We could talk for many, many uh, weeks or years about the work of the Holy Spirit. So because the Holy Spirit is living in them, not only are they set apart, but they can actually live lives which are called holy which is something close to Jesus. So they start to do, think the thoughts of Jesus, they start to do the actions of Jesus, and everybody in this room that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ should know something of holiness. Now you might wish, I'm sure we all do, that we were more like Jesus than we are, right? But thank God for what he's done, thank you for what he's God, for where he's brought you to, especially if you can honestly say, well, I was a babe in Christ, which we all were at some time, right? But now I've, I'm growing up into childhood and into maybe teenage years, into maturity. That's the direction, and it's all growth in holiness, and it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And we learn to cooperate with him, things that we which, which we were so big to us, even as Christians, that don't honor God. He's able to change our thinking. He's able to change our behavior. I can't stress enough the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, Holy Spirit, pure gift, all gift. Jesus is pure gift. 
Holy Spirit is all gift. God is not playing games with us. He's not asking us to be and to do what we do not have the capacity to do. So yes, there's times when we specially need to fast and pray. We specially need to feel power. We've talked about that many times, that the power of the Holy Spirit so that He can give you courage. He can help you to be all that Jesus wants you to be. Together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you. Do you always thank God for me? What about one another? Thank you, Lord, for sister so-and-so. She is a pain in the shorts, but Lord, just wrap your arms of love. You know, if you can pray for your enemies, as Jesus tells us to do, and expects us to do, your feelings will change within. God will say, yes, they're finally getting it. So it's not about feelings. Feelings are pretty fickle things. Sometimes you like the pastor, sometimes you don't like the pastor. That's irrelevant. What's important is that we're tuned into God no matter what our feelings tell us. And I'm, I don't want to play down feelings because I know there's many times when you, you, you have a decision to make and you're not quite sure which way, direction to go and you have this kind of inner feeling that this is the way, walk ye in it. So there is a subjective side very much in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But working from principle, whether you feel like it or not, is the mature way, the way that shows that you're growing into the image. I don't think Jesus for a minute felt, yeah, it would be really neat to go to Calvary. Be really neat to struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, he does say at one point, how long do I have to put up with you guys? Huh? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the grace of God brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and immediately we have this peace. The barriers are broken down. No longer does God treat you with his wrath, but he treats you with his grace. In my class, we talked about that this morning. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. And when we talk about spiritual gifts like we did week, last week, I mentioned this little word, grace. So we think of grace in terms of bringing us to Jesus and the plan of salvation. You've heard many sermons on that, I hope. We love sermons on grace, don't we? So encouraging. But also think of grace in the way that God wires us, the way that God wants his church family to function, the very fact that we're in the body of Christ, the life, the energy comes from the head through the body. Think of it in terms of service, uh, the story this morning with Gene. All of that is, in fact, it's all of grace. When you and I get into heaven around the throne of God, grace is going to be our favorite word pure grace. We don't deserve any of this. So, thanksgiving, and it's always good to thank people or to, to bring out something positive before you rebuke them. Now, you can't do it in a phony way. It has to be genuine, but it's a good principle in life, don't you think so? 
if you're an employer, if you're a leader, to try and always bring out the positive before perhaps you mention some negative things. And we are leading up to some negatives here. So I thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him, verse 5, you've been enriched in every way. How many ways? Every way. All that we need in Christ Jesus has been provided. We may not understand that, that's why we need Bible teachers and we need the Holy Spirit to teach us as we study these things. But everything we need to be like Christ has been provided. In all of your speaking and in all of your knowledge, there must be a reason why he singled those things out because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. So the gospel went out, preaching, teaching, lecturing, whichever way that went out, people responded. That's the confirmation that God is working. If I preach the word this morning and none of you are impacted, then I think we have every right to say God is not working. So that's what he means here. The message went out. A good response came by believing or following, confirmed in you, verse 6. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end. I love verses like verse 8. Let's read it together, verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an amazing verse if you know the rest of the book. If you've read the whole thing through and you know the problems and the challenges that were in that church, that's an amazing statement. How can he make a statement like that? On what basis? Because the one who has begun the work in you is the one that will finish the work in you. Let's give God credit that he knows what he's doing when he calls you to himself. The sovereignty, the power of God. Are we passive in this relationship? No. Philippians 2. He that's begun a good work in you will finish it, yes, but also uh, what the part that we have to do, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but then what God does, because it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's another paradox of Christianity. Don't try and understand it, but you do have to experience it. You need to know that God has called you. You need to know of the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you need to know how to work it out in your daily living. So when you come to church or when you're in the church family, there should be people within the church family, we might call them pastors, elders, teachers, leaders, whatever. It doesn't matter what we call them. As long as someone's exercising the gift of teaching so that we can all be built up. These are some of the gifts that God has put in his church. Now, if we just listen, 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 and never implement, then we will not grow. So we do have something to do as far as growing in the Lord. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord is faithful. He will do it. And by the way, though it's not mentioned here, but it certainly is in Hebrews, if you're not the cooperative kind, are you the cooperative kind this morning? In England, we have cooperatives actually call that the supermarkets, and they sell things a little bit cheaper. 
by cooperating and getting the prices down. So we need the spirit of cooperation. We've got to get along with one another, but more importantly, we've got to get along with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this God who calls us to holiness, if we start playing around and doing things that are anything but holy, whoa, watch out. It's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says there in the scriptures. And in the book of Hebrews, all the way through is this idea of God disciplines those that he loves. So here's the way I interpret this. You want to go through the pearly gates? Yay or nay? All right. Do you want to go in the easy way or the hard way? The easy way is to cooperate with God. So I don't care. You've got this idol, this, this idol of sin in your life. You've been Christian long enough. You know it needs to go. It seems all powerful. It's like a giant. And you're little David. And God says, take your slingshot and put some stones in it and start throwing. No, Lord, I don't want to. I like this thing too much. Anybody relate to that this morning? No? Just me? Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I have a church that the pastor is the problem. Any one of you that's honest this morning knows that you have things or recently have had things in your life that have been really, really big, but they don't honor God. They need to go. And we can have Bible teachers that harangue you and bang you on the head and may shame you and blame you. I'm not into the shame and blame business. It doesn't work. Temporary fix, that's all. What we need is permanent fix. We need to be holy from within. We read a real powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So that is a cooperative thing. That's what I'm emphasizing here. And you will be all that you should be. Here he uses the word blameless on the day of the Lord. You'll be all that God wants you to be as you cooperate with this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Things that seem to loom so large as you mature in Christ, you'll look back and you'll almost laugh at them. How did, how did that ever loom so large in my life? However, when you get rid of two or three things, there's always something lurking around the corner. So holiness is the work of a lifetime, right? I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, so here's some of the negatives coming in, with one another, so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Verse 10 is a very important verse here. He talks of divisions, and he talks of united. So if you have a divided church, then you basically what you have is a dysfunctioning body, church body. It's not representative of what Jesus would want. Jesus wants a healthy church body. And Jesus provided everything that the church family needs to be a healthy uh, church family, to fire, as I said last week, on all cylinders at the right time in a cooperative way. There's no way that this church can be healthy, this church can grow, unless 
every one of us is connected with the head. Every one of us is cooperating with God and with one another. Now, we lay a strong emphasis in the Adventist church on cooperating with God in the uh, sanctification and holiness uh, department. But one of the great ways of knowing whether, whether this is working or not in your life is how do you get on with one another? Do you really love the brethren? Are you willing to live a life of service? That's what discipleship is. It's calling you to a life of service. And of course, very important in the context of spiritual gifts to figure out how God has put you together and what contribution you should make. Ray, I'm looking forward to sitting down with you or other people in this church sitting down with you and figuring all of that out. Where is Ray talented? Where is he gifted? What areas of ministry? I think you're actually running ahead of us, Ray, which is not a bad thing to do, by the way. Uh, you're just getting busy with it anyway. But hopefully we can help somewhat in that area. So what do you want to, do you want in Anderson a divided church or a united church? Well, it's not going to happen just because we say united, just because we throw these slogans around. We have to really work on it. There's some things in the church family that maybe you don't like. Maybe some things in your life that other people don't like. So we have to be tuned in with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to, I as a pastor, have a responsibility to do that. And you too, as a follower of Christ, all of us are responsible in that department. This division was threatening the very life of the church. Having started churches from scratch, having seen, that, seen them in that infant baby stage, uh, I know a little bit of Paul's heart, how it must have gone out to this, this church family. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. It's interesting that it mentions this female Chloe. Um, pretty much in the first century, you can say, now, women should know their place, and whatever they say is not going to be valid in a court of law or anywhere else. End of discussion. Here what you see, uh, a number of decades after Jesus, is women coming to the fore, and here this person called Chloe. So would you like to hear a sermon on Chloe someday and her household? Well, they've informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, who's Cephas? Peter, still another, I follow Christ. Now, in the flow of the whole book, it was the Christ party that seemed to be the problem party. So I'm just cluing you in, it's not that relevant for this sermon this morning, but later if I deal with the book of Corinthians, just kind of remember four divisions, but one of them a real strong power and force for division in the church, and that was the Christ party, who I believe were Jewish Christian Gnostics. And I think Paul was shocked when he visited Corinth at how powerful this group really was. We need to move in the same direction, Anderson Church. 
We need Christ to make that clear what that direction is. Don't think we know it because we're Seventh-day Adventists, because we don't. So figure out what that direction is. Dig out the biblical principles, just like Jean was bringing them into her story. Did you pick that up this morning? She's talking with these children and, and bringing in biblical principles, maybe without even mentioning a text or anything, just knowing what those principles are and then applying them to the story. That's what we need to do as a church family. Let me give you some of those principles. One of them is equality of ministry. I believe in this so strongly, and it is highly neglected in our church. God does not give His gifts according to sex. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible, certainly not in the New Testament. So equality of ministry, and like the story said this morning, we're not all looking the same, we're not all acting the same, we're not talking about uniformity now. Because later, Paul will go on to talk about the body, and he'll mention the ear and the eye and the different members of the body. They don't all look the same. They don't all act the same, but they do work together in harmony. So harmony, if you're a musician, harmony is a good word to think about when we talk about how the church family should function. And we're getting away, hopefully in our thinking, from the hierarchical model where someone is top dog. The Catholic system, that would be the Pope. In the Adventist system, well, you figure out who it is. For me, it's Jesus. So what you have, instead of the man-made hierarchical model, you have a model like this. The head is dictating to the body, or trying to dictate to the body, exactly what the head wants. So, how does, that, how does that work out? Well, here's one way. Let's say the Anderson Church has um, just a few individuals that when they figure out what their spiritual gifts are, only, only maybe two have the gift of evangelism. But let's say Jesus wants 10 to have the gift of evangelism so that our church can, can move under, under the influence of those gifts in a certain direction as far as the community, witnessing, getting the word out, and things that evangelists do. Then, Jesus being the head, knowing exactly what this church family needs, or the Reading Church family, or the Palo Cedro Church family, he's going to give those gifts either to some of you here, gulp, I'm going to get the gift of evangelism. That would be quite challenging for some of you, but hey, if Jesus gives it you, you better use it, right? Use it or lose it. So Jesus will give that gift, or he'll bring people into our fellowship, new people who have that gift. And then the challenge is for the leadership to figure that out and then uh, put them into areas of ministry. So there's one way that this can be worked out. Division is a no-no. You only have to read John 17, the most, one of the most beautiful prayers anywhere in the whole of Scripture to show how important unity was for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is God divided? Do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fall out occasionally? Do they envy one another? No. Each has a role, which is clearly spelled out as far as the plan of salvation. 
the role of the whole of, of the Godhead is not clearly spelled out as far as eternity past. Scripture is pretty much limited to the plan of salvation. So the Father, one way of expressing it, the Father plans this out, the Son executes it as far as saving the human race, and then the Holy Spirit applies it so that you and I can be brought to Christ and stay strong in Christ. So no, the Godhead is not divided, neither should we. So he mentions that in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you. Whoa, what's going on here? Is Paul getting out of line here? Except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Interesting way of putting it. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember. Do you want to know how inspiration works? These verses here are very interesting. He says something, then he remembers something else, and then he doesn't remember. So when you see Ellen White's manuscripts, crossing out whole lines, whole paragraphs, if you believe that inspiration is the words given by God and they had better not change, majority of the Christian world believes that's caused a lot of problems, actually caused splits in whole denominations. That's how big it is. Then you're going to have problems with a verse like this. If you believe in thought inspiration, then the crossing out and the changing and the rewording, not a problem. It's the man or the woman that's inspired, not the way they express something. There's always better ways of expressing something. All right, and I bet you not every pastor can remember everyone they're baptized. I'll remember you, Ray, but I forgot all the rest of them. <laughs> For Christ did not send me to baptize. So this is the way he's wired now. The way that God on that Damascus road wired Paul is to get the message out. That's the primary work of him. Certainly one of the most primary, he emphasizes this so strongly here, to preach the gospel, not with the words of human wisdom like the Christ party, like the false teachers, with all of their sophisticated Greek rhetoric. That's why they like Apollos, because he had that gift. If Paul had it, he didn't exercise it. He was much more simple in his language. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of what? I don't hear any power out there. Emptied of what? It's power, the power of the gospel. Romans 1, turn to Romans 1. Looked at that in our class this morning. This this isn't good advice. This is powerful stuff that changed pieces, people's lives, gets them ready for eternity. Verse 16 of Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of what? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Any one of you that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced something of the power of God. When I preach in this pulpit, I need to experience the power of God. It can come loudly, it can come softly, but we need the power of God to change human minds and human hearts. 
Otherwise, it's all empty. For the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew and the Gentile, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then he goes on to talk about the godlessness and the wrath of God coming upon the ungodly in this world, which is the majority of people, which is, is the totality of people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. So you're either experiencing the wrath of God or you're coming under the grace of God, which here is uh, wrapped up in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. No one's in between, though I know that many think they are. Many think that they're sitting on the fence. Have you ever tried to straddle the fence? I'll guarantee I did this when I was a child and I've done it on sea walls that have been very rough and I've fallen right between. Ooh. And you get that salt water into some of those cuts. And then I, was, I must have been pretty young and maybe not very smart either. When they went to the nurse, she poured some iodine on it or whatever it was. She said, when I'm going to pour this on, it's really going to hurt. I had just scratches all over the inside of my legs. And she said, blow on it. And for whatever reason, I didn't hear that. So I was going, <gasps> and she's saying, no, blow on it. <laughs> Somehow it's supposed to help, not hurt as much if you blow on it. Nurses, is that true? <laughs> Don't try and straddle the fence. It is a miserable way to go. And spiritually, it's impossible. You're either in or you're out. You're either saved or you're lost. You either have the wrath of God, or you're covered under the grace of God. And nobody is so bad, and so rotten, and so ungodly, that they cannot be covered by the grace of God. Amen. God delights to take the worst of the worst, and I certainly would put Paul into that category if he was killing Christians at one time. It's a pretty bad thing to do, don't you think so? So, the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's folly to teach or to preach anything else. There are other things to teach. We, want, we need to teach about the law of God, right? How are people going to be convicted of sin unless they know the law of God? But where the power is, is when you give people good news. So you talk about the wrath of God, you talk about sin, it's very important to do that. In my class this morning, the way we did it, right at the beginning of the class, was just one sinful thought, one sinful action excludes you from eternity with God. Do you believe that? Yes. It's what the Bible actually teaches. It's not how many we sins that excludes us from God. We're in the state of sin. That's our status. That's our standing before God, and that's why we experience His wrath. Present tense. Carry on reading in Romans 1.18, present tense, but also future when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So how do you avoid all that negative stuff? The wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, being outside of a right relationship with Him, simply by trusting Jesus. But, but Pastor, isn't that, isn't that just kind of like a believism? No, it's not believism. Now, I know that there are some within Christendom that quote Romans 10. 
if we just say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we're saved. So people can come front to the front of the church or even the baptism. Like Many, many churches would, would be dunking half, half of this congregation now if this wa water was warm. And they would orchestrate it in such a way and explain baptism in such a way that you'd feel real guilty if you didn't do it. But none of that shows that a person is born again, that a person is converted. It's an act of the will. It's a change of, of, of the heart. It's from within. It's not just what we do on the outside. But nobody has to be in that state of being unsaved. All of us, God wants to save every single one of us. But notice here the importance of the cross as we wrap up. We see this confusion within the Corinthian congregation. They got led astray by the false teachers. It's a huge problem. Paul actually wrote three letters to Corinth. The first one he wrote, but we don't have it. Somebody want to sponsor me to, to the Qumran, Qumran caves and in, in a, <laughs> get to the Dead Sea or somewhere like that and discover them? That put Anderson Church on the map. Pastor founds, finds the hidden gospel of Corinth. There was a first gospel, it's gone. This is the second one, which what we call 1 Corinthians is probably the second one, and what we call 2 Corinthians is probably the third one. Three messages, three letters. Do you think this was a problem or not? Major problem to try and get the correct adjustment, get this church on track, get them into a unified group of people so they can make an impact on this great city and bring glory to God. Let's wrap it up here with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What a joke! This Jewish criminal hanging on a cross that I can be saved for eternity because of this person dying for me? You know, that same skepticism is still out there in society. Just study any, go on any of the atheist websites and you'll find all of this stuff. It was so 2,000 years ago. Foolishness to some and everlasting life to others. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness, but to those who are being saved, present tense, it is the power of God. And there it is again. We saw it in Romans We've seen it a couple of times in these few verses of Corinthians. I want to know where the power is. Christianity comes across as a lifeless force if there's no power. If you and I can't go out of this building and talk about the power of God, what do we have to offer? An ideology? We have the 28 beliefs that are correct. Who's going to sign on the dotted line if you express it that way? We are the remnant. There may be an element of truth in all of the ways that we could explain it, but it's not where the power of God is. The power of God is in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why do we have four Gospels? Because we need four perspectives to get it. And more than that, we have all the rest of the New Testament, which essentially in many ways, could be looked at as interpreting 
the cross, the, the significance of the cross. Yeah, this man died on the cross, but so did a lot of other people in the first century. What's so special about Jesus? Well, obviously, this one rose from the dead. That's pretty special. It's not every day that that happens. But then when you get into all of the implications which are worked out in Ephesians and Romans and books like that, of the implications of the, of the death of Christ, this is where the action is. This is where the power is. And the essence of the Adventist message, it's right there, and we've been studying this on Tuesday evenings from the great controversy in the three angels' message, right? The first message, having the everlasting gospel. That's exactly what, he hasn't used the word everlasting, but it's exactly the same. There's only one gospel, right? It's the same thing that he's talking about there, the good news of Jesus Christ anyone who believes and trusts in him. So that's what you need to share, folks. And that's what the Bible teaching in this church needs to make central to every teaching. So in other words, we don't want to preach the Sabbath outside of the cross. We don't want to preach the law of God outside of the cross. Christ and him crucified has to be central to all of our teaching, even children's stories here at the front. Let's pray. Gracious God, this is an exciting book, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're just scratching the surface, Lord, and we're mainly doing it to look at what the church should be and, and spiritual gifts and so on. But I pray, Lord, that each one of us will see the, the necessity for unity. So here we are, Lord, in a bit of a transition period at the Anderson Church, trying to figure out what direction to go. Uh, some of us are reading books, we are searching the scriptures, we're digging out the principles, we're looking at the writings of Ellen White. We're, and somehow, Lord, we need, we need a real moving of your Holy Spirit to bring it all together in a cohesive way. And Lord, perhaps more importantly, to, to lay upon our hearts the need for change, the need for revival and reformation, and to, to, to do church, if I can use that term, in a way that is pleasing to you. I thank you, Lord, for everybody that's gathered here. We especially thank you for Ray once more. Just, just ask for your anointing upon him. And I pray, pray, Lord, that none of us will discourage him here, that we'll do everything we can to build him and others up in the Lord. We thank you for our guests that have been here today. And Lord, as we as we separate now, some of us will stay for the fellowship meal, and, and everyone is welcome to do that. But some will go in different directions, Lord. Please go with them. Uh, draw your, make yourself so real to them, Lord, that they will know, and others will know, that they've been with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.